1: You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit HelloAlma.com Therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's HelloAlma.com slash Therapy30. You must remember this is sponsored today by The Great Courses Plus. Start learning about topics ranging from history to science and many more. Try it for free by visiting TheGreatCoursesPlus.com. Slash remember. We're also sponsored by Blue Apron, who make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Get two meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash remember. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is the final episode of our long-running series, The Blacklist.
2: Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist
3: Party? A quarantine is necessary to okay. keep it it's from, it. from reads and advocates the views
1: expressed. I had my way about it, they'd all be sent back to Russia. The blacklist happened because of the motion picture industry's utter addiction to good publicity. The blacklist was broken because a few people figured out how to use publicity to break it. The goal was to convince the industry and the public that the blacklist was over by creating events that they could point to and say, look at this, this must mean the blacklist is over. Only then would the people who were actually doing the blacklisting be forced to make the changes that would really mean that the blacklist was over. At least that's one version of the story. Just as there were many explanations and justifications for why the blacklist was necessary, and many events, some related and others not, that led to it, the end of the blacklist was a process that depended on the work of many individuals and a lot of group evolution. Though many people would later take some credit for helping to bring this period of persecution to an end, even most of them would agree that there wasn't one single action or event, or one single person, responsible for ending the Blacklist forever. Unless you ask Kirk Douglas, who has claimed that the Blacklist shattered thanks mostly to the courage of one man, Kirk Douglas. Today we'll get to that. We'll also discuss the direct or indirect involvement of a number of other people, from Charlie Chaplin to Gary Cooper, Joseph Losey, and exploitation cheapskates the King Brothers. We'll talk about the connection between the end of the blacklist and the weakening of the production code, and what both had to do with the slow dissolution of the studio system amidst the rise of independent producers and a younger generation of audiences. Join us, won't you, for the final story of The Blacklist. I've been telling you about The Great Courses Plus for a while now, and many of you have already signed up for this great video learning service. And now, you have unlimited access to over 7,000 fascinating video lectures taught by award-winning professors. But if you haven't signed up for The Great Courses Plus yet, now's the perfect time. Because we have a special offer. The Great Courses Plus lets you learn about anything that interests you—history, science, or even how to cook, play chess, or speak Spanish you can watch their engaging online video lectures anytime, anywhere, using your TV, laptop, tablet, or smartphone. One of their fascinating courses is called Turning Points of Modern History. Over the course of 24 lectures, it spans from the 1400s all the way up through, like, basically today, tackling subjects like Gutenberg's print revolution, the French revolution, the opium wars in China, the invention of movies, the Dawn of the Atom, and the Fall of the Berlin Wall. Just like we try to do here on You Must Remember This, this course will help you get a context for how certain historical events are related to one another, like how the space program grew out of developments made during World War II and advanced rapidly during the Cold War out of paranoia, which resulted in the moon landing, and so on you'll love The Great Courses Plus. So sign up today, and as one of my podcast listeners, you'll immediately get one month free to start watching as many lectures as you want. Whether it's the Turning Points of Modern History, or one of their dozens of other courses that will help you learn a new language or hobby, or explore all kinds of history. To start your free trial today, sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com Remember?
3: For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today.
1: It's important to remember that ultimately, there was really only one thing holding the blacklist together uniting all of the studios together in compliance to it, and forcing anyone who wanted to defy it to resort to extraordinary measures. That one thing was the Waldorf Declaration, the agreement not to hire anyone suspected of communism which the studios entered into after the HUAC hearings of the Hollywood Ten. But united artists... Wasn't an MPAA signatory, and no one from United Artists had participated in the meeting at the Waldorf Astoria, which led to the declaration. United Artists had other problems. By the early 1940s, Charlie Chaplin and Mary Pickford were the only original artists left in ownership and management of United Artists. A decade later, after his problems with the U.S. government over his supposed communist affiliations discussed earlier in this series, Chaplin left the United States for the long haul. He and Pickford then ceded control of United Artists to a consortium headed by Arthur Krim. United Artists had been founded by actors and filmmakers as a vehicle through which they could own and distribute their own movies. But by the time the company changed hands... There were no in-house artists at United Artists, and Krim and his crew needed to figure out how to get content to distribute quickly and efficiently. What they ended up doing was aggressively pursuing deals with independent producers, in some cases offering more or risking more than any other distribution company was willing to do. In their first year, the new United Artists released several hits, including two films with significant blacklist backstories or subtexts. One was The African Queen, which we've already talked about in this series. Another was High Noon, a meta-Western in which one man, played by Gary Cooper, is forced to stand alone due to the groupthink and fear rampant in his community. High Noon was written by Carl Foreman, who was blacklisted by the time the movie was in theaters, after having refused to name names before HUAC. Foreman, in collaboration with producer Stanley Kramer, had made a number of socially conscious movies, including The Champion, starring Kirk Douglas, Home of the Brave, and The Men. Foreman would later acknowledge that he had intended High Noon to serve as a parable to McCarthyism, although there's no way he could have foreseen certain similarities to his own fate when he was writing. In High Noon, Gary Cooper's martial character is forced to face his opponents alone, and when the showdown is over, he leaves town in disgust. This mirrored Foreman's fate. He had to move to England to work, and he apparently remained hurt and angry at the people who he felt had turned his back on him, including Kramer, who Foreman accused of seizing credit for High Noon once Foreman had been blacklisted out of the picture, a charge those close to Kramer vehemently deny. Two years after the release of High Noon, United Artists made an even bolder move. The Production Code Office had refused to grant a seal of approval to Otto Preminger's film The Moon is Blue, a romantic farce starring William Holden and David Niven citing the film's insouciance regarding sex. United Artists decided to release the film anyway, without a seal of approval. And the movie drew huge crowds. Three years later, the code office denied a seal to another premature film, The Man with the Golden Arm. United Artists released it anyway, and it became a huge hit. These controversial successes helped rebuild United Artists into a major player, And late in the 1950s, other studios were wondering what they could do to emulate UA. The thing that made UA unique was that they offered their producers total freedom, and that included the freedom to deny the strictures that other producers, studios, and distributors obeyed, whether that meant defying the production code or hiring blacklist workers, which UA turned a blind eye on. Still, Crim and crew weren't total cowboys. They knew that no matter who worked on the movies they released, all kinds of problems could arise if they publicized the fact that anyone on the blacklist was working for them. So they reserved the right to deny anyone credit on any film for any reason. In 1955, UA released the Catherine Hepburn film Summertime, which everyone involved with knew had been written by Donald Ogden Stewart, who had written several of Hepburn's biggest hits. But Stewart had been blacklisted since 1950, and his name was nowhere to be found in connection with the movie. UA released Joseph Losey's The Big Night, without crediting blacklisted co-writers Ring Lardner Jr. and Hugh Butler. Losey's name was named before HUAC in September 1951, and after that, he started working under pseudonyms. United Artists released Stranger on the Prowl, which was directed by Losey and written by Ben Barsman, but both were replaced in the credits by the fake name Andrea Forzano. By 1957, Losey had stored up enough cred working in England that he was able to revert to using his own name in Hollywood, and was able to hire some blacklisted screenwriters and actors. Losey was at the center of a vibrant community of exiled blacklistees in Europe, most of whom weren't able to get back to work in the U.S. under their own names until the next decade. Other blacklisted folks, including Albert Maltz, Hugh Butler, and Dalton Trumbo, tried to write and work in Mexico. Trumbo wrote one script in Mexico called The Brave One, but ultimately he concluded that his exile had been a huge mistake, and he returned to Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, Trembo did a lot of work for the King Brothers, who made cheapy movies out of black market scripts, usually shooting in Europe. The King Brothers hired more blacklisted workers than any other producers. They weren't fighting on principle. They were happy to work with blacklisted screenwriters because they were generally much better writers than the producers could usually get for the bargain basement rates they were able to pay. But the King Brothers didn't want anyone to know that blacklisted writers were writing their movies. There was absolutely no problem with this at all until the King Brothers agreed to produce Trumbo's script for The Brave One. The King Brothers usually made B movies, crime movies, genre movies, circus movies. A more typical King Brothers title was Carnival Story, a lurid Anne Baxter melodrama about sex between carnies, secretly written by Trumbo and Michael Wilson. When Trumbo later said that most films sold on the black market, quote, were really not memorable, this is the kind of thing he was talking about. But The Brave One was a little bit different. Based on an experience Trumbo had had at a bullfight in Mexico, it was a sensitive drama about a little boy and his pet bull, very much in the tradition of what the Academy has always considered literary. When the film was made, the script was credited to Robert Lyle Rich. And so when The Brave One was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Story, the nominee was Robert Lyle Rich. This was not the first time a script Trumbo had written, but was not credited on, was nominated for an Oscar. Trumbo had written the story for Roman Holiday, and after he was blacklisted, he passed the story on to his friend, Ian McClellan Hunter. The two made a deal to share the proceeds from the sale of the script. Hunter did some work on it, and the film was produced under Hunter's name only. Roman Holiday won the Oscar in 1953 for Best Original Story. And though he knew that it had been Trumbo that had written that story, and not him, Hunter had no choice but to accept the Oscar, or else expose the front system that was allowing many writers to work despite being blacklisted. Hunter himself was soon blacklisted, and ended up working as the editor of Diner's Club magazine. But three years later... When Robert Rich was announced as the winner of the Oscar for Best Original Story for The Brave One, no Robert Rich showed up at the Academy Awards to claim his prize. When newspaper reporters started looking into where Robert Lyle Rich was on the biggest night of his career, it was soon revealed that there was no member of the Writers Guild named Robert Lyle Rich. The Academy was like, that can't be right because they had had a request for two tickets to the ceremony from a Robert Rich. A Robert Rich who turned out not to be a writer, but a nephew of the King Brothers, who had produced the movie. For reasons that are unclear to me, the King Brothers did not try to pass off their nephew as the author of The Brave One. Instead, they told reporters that the real author was another Robert Rich, who they had met in Munich years before, but who they had somehow lost touch with. Nobody seemed to buy this. And anyway, the Oscar remained unclaimed. So a number of things started to happen. One was that opportunists started to come out of the woodwork, accusing the King brothers of plagiarism. And RKO, who had distributed the film, withheld profits while waiting to see how the lawsuits would shake out. And reporters kept hammering away at the mystery. They started asking blacklisted writers if they were responsible for the brave one, including Trumbo, who refused to say... But in a CBS TV interview, Trumbo acknowledged that since he had been officially barred from working for major studios, he had continued to work under assumed names. And, quote, more than one and less than four of his screenplays had been nominated for Oscars. The Trumbo Brave One Oscar scandal made a mockery of the blacklist in a way that was understandable to non-industry people few of whom knew that this was just the tip of the iceberg, because Trumbo was by no means the only blacklisted writer whose work had been nominated for and even won Oscars. Michael Wilson had won his Oscar for A Place in the Sun in 1952, a year after he had taken the fifth and subsequently found himself blacklisted. He was nominated again for Friendly Persuasion in 1957, even though the film's distributor had not credited him on the movie. After the nominations were announced that year, the Academy's board passed an emergency bylaw making it illegal for a non-cooperative congressional witness to win an Oscar, and Wilson was thus disqualified. But it was perfectly legal for a blacklisted writer to write an Oscar-winning script, as long as they didn't put their name on it. Wilson and Carl Foreman had collaborated on the script for The Bridge on the River Kwai the following year. But the screenplay was credited only to Pierre Boulle, who wrote the French-language novel on which the movie was based, and who didn't speak enough English to write an English-language adaptation. River Kwai was an Oscar juggernaut, winning Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor. Its script also won the Oscar, and the award went solely to Boulle. And although he didn't show up to claim it, at least he was known to be a real person. By this point, certain members of the Academy were feeling pretty silly. In late 1958, two members of the Board of Governors, George Seaton and Valentine Davies, approached Ned Young and Harold Jacob Smith, the writers of The Defiant Ones, a Stanley Kramer movie in which Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier played two prisoners who escape chained to one another. The film had been extremely profitable, and was widely praised for its social relevance it was pretty certain that it would be nominated for Oscars. The only problem was that Ned Young, who had been credited on the film as Nathan E. Douglas, had been blacklisted after his unfriendly appearance before HUAC in 1953. Since then, he had been credited as the writer of one film, the Elvis Presley classic, Jailhouse Rock, which had been loosely based on a socially conscious jailhouse screenplay Young had written for MGM when he was under contract there before he was blacklisted. When Jailhouse Rock came out with Young's name on it, the American Legion had gone after Young by name, and he had been reduced to working first as a bartender and then a garbage truck driver. In other words, The story of his hardship due to the blacklist would make incredible copy, and the Academy governors told Young and Smith that they would work to remove the bylaw that made it impossible for blacklisted writers to receive Oscars if Young and Smith would play their part in a carefully managed publicity campaign, through which Young's real identity would be revealed to the public after The Defiant Ones had already received some pre-Oscar honors and was fully established in the minds of the public as a great, important film. And so, on New Year's Day, 1959, after The Defiant Ones had been awarded the Best Director and Best Screenplay honors by the New York Film Critics Circle, the New York Times ran an interview with Smith and Young, in which Young was outed as the real co-writer of The Defiant Ones. Meanwhile, the King brothers had gotten to the point where they needed to absolve themselves of lawsuits, and the easy way to do that would be to out Trumbo as the author of The Brave One. With the complicity of the Kings, in January 1959, a local TV news station gave Dalton Trumbo a televised platform to admit that he was Robert Rich, or at least that the blacklisted former communist had written The Brave One. The Academy did rescind their restriction on nominations for blacklistees, and Ned Young won that year's writing prize. But there was still a long way to go. This was still over a year before the events we discussed last week involving Frank Sinatra and Albert Maltz. So, this is where we need to back up and bring in Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas's involvement in the story began in December 1957, nine months after Robert Rich won an Oscar. Douglas's producing partner Eddie Lewis gave the actor a copy of a novel written by Howard Fast, a former communist who had been subpoenaed by HUAC over his involvement with an anti-fascist group called the Spanish Refugee Appeal. After refusing to hand over documents regarding the group, Fast had done three months in prison for contempt of Congress. In prison, the same prison where Hollywood 10 members Albert Maltz and Edward Dimitrick were serving time at the same time, Fast began writing the novel that came across Kirk Douglas's desk half a decade later. Spartacus. Spartacus tells the story of a failed slave revolt against the Roman Empire, led by a former gladiator. Its theme of rebelling against an unjust government had an obvious parallel to its author's battle with Congress. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm
2: Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus!
1: Perhaps predictably, when Fast left prison, he found himself blacklisted by publishers, and he was forced to self-publish Spartacus. As it turned out, Kirk Douglas had been in the market for Roman epics since he'd been turned down for the Charlton Heston role in Ben-Hur. Douglas, through his production company Brinna, optioned the book. And he made a deal with Fast, who had never worked in Hollywood and thus wasn't blacklisted there, to write the screenplay. Only then did Douglas discover that United Artists was planning a film about the same story, called The Gladiator's and the Gladiators had a head start. Universal, which was no one's idea of a prestige studio at the time, was willing to take Douglas's Gladiator movie on, on the condition that he deliver a script quickly. But non-screenwriter Fast's speed-ridden script turned out to be subpar, and Douglas needed somebody good, and faster than fast, to do a rewrite. Everyone knew the fastest writer in town was Dalton Trumbo. Trumbo, who was by now accustomed to adopting pseudonyms in order to work, agreed to write the Spartacus script under the name Sam Jackson. What happened between May of 1958 and August of 1960 to get Dalton Trumbo a credit under his own name for Spartacus? Douglas has told his version of this story many times and in many forums, starting with his 1988 autobiography, The Ragman's Son which was published after both Otto Preminger and Dalton Trumbo, two of the major players in this story, had passed away. This book helped to establish Douglas in the nostalgic memory as the man who broke the blacklist. 24 years later, at the age of 95, Douglas reinforced this brand by publishing a book specifically on Spartacus, with the subtitle, Making a Film, Breaking the Blacklist. So according to Douglas, the blacklist ended in December of 1959 when he called the main gate at Universal Studios and had them leave a parking pass for Dalton Trumbo under his real name. That's right. Douglas says the blacklist ended not with a bang, not with a screen credit or the passing of a statute against hiring discrimination, but with a parking pass. And with that single call to the studio gate... As Douglas later wrote, the masquerade was over. All my friends told me I was being stupid, throwing my career away. It was a tremendous risk, but the blacklist was broken. I wasn't thinking of being a hero and breaking the blacklist. It wasn't until later I realized the significance of that impulsive gesture.
2: Selling a little or a lot? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash Odyssey Podcast, all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash Odyssey Podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Odyssey Podcast.
1: If Douglas really wasn't thinking about breaking the blacklist, it was probably in part because, like the King brothers, he and his production company were benefiting from the cheap, high-quality labor that the blacklist made available. In March of 1959, for example, Brinna had five blacklisted writers under contract— Trumbo, Paul Jericho, Mitch Lindemann, John Howard Lawson, and Ring Lardner Jr. And they had no non-blacklisted writers under contract— You could say that Douglas & Co. even preferred hiring blacklisted writers because they could get away with underpaying them. But it's disingenuous for Douglas to claim he wasn't thinking about every gesture he made when it came to working with Dalton Trumbo. By the time Douglas single-handedly ended the blacklist by making the call to secure Trumbo's parking pass, it was already common knowledge that Spartacus had been ridden by Trumbo. In March of 1959, nine months before Douglas took the tremendous risk of requesting a parking pass, Walter Winchell ran an item in his nationwide column naming Trumbo as Spartacus' screenwriter. Douglas had recently fired his attorney, Sam Norton, who reportedly spread the word around town that Douglas was working with Trumbo. And when Douglas fired Anthony Mann a few weeks into shooting the film, replacing him with Stanley Kubrick... Mann also told anyone who would listen that Trumbo was writing the film. But rather than acknowledge Trumbo at this point, Douglas denied these reports, even assuring Universal head Edward Mole that it was all just gossip. Douglas would later claim that he was merely trying to protect the fact that he had promised Trumbo that he'd be credited by his real name. Meanwhile, Douglas's production company asked Trumbo to formally send them a letter from Sam Jackson, allowing them to omit the pseudonym from the film's credits, an act that wouldn't have been done if anyone was planning to use Spartacus as a test case for the defiant hiring of a blacklist writer, unless this was also part of the elaborate subterfuge Douglas was mounting to keep Universal unawares. And there is some evidence that Douglas was working on an extremely long con. In mid-1958, probably shortly after hiring Trumbo under the pseudonym, Douglas reportedly met with Richard Nixon to ask the former HUAC member and current vice president for his help in bringing an end to the blacklist. Douglas wanted Nixon to make a public statement, saying that producers had a right to hire whomever they wanted on the free market. But Nixon refused to get involved. According to Douglas, he made the decision to bring everything out into the open after a meeting in which he discussed the question of credit with Kubrick and Eddie Lewis. When Kubrick suggested they credit Kubrick as both writer and director, Douglas got annoyed and called Universal and ordered that fateful parking pass. If Douglas had a sudden about-face in deciding to openly support Trumbo... It's possible that the star's hand was forced by Otto Preminger, who approached Dalton Trumbo in December 1959, around the same time as the historic parking pass request, and asked the blacklisted writer to rewrite the script for his upcoming film, Exodus. It had been six years since Preminger's The Moon is Blue became the first film by a major Hollywood director to seek release after having been refused a seal of approval by the Production Code Administration, a risk retaken by Preminger and United Artists with The Man with the Golden Arm. Both of those acts of defiance had turned out pretty well, generating enormous publicity and matching box office. In hiring Trumbo, Preminger was essentially going back to the same well. The New York Times and Variety both announced Preminger's hiring of Trumbo as a landmark in the breaking of the blacklist, with the former deeming the hiring, quote, the first official defiance by a producer-director of Hollywood's so-called blacklist. Preminger himself categorized the hiring as an act of defiance, telling the Times that he thought the blacklist was, quote, immoral and illegal, just like lynching. But again, Preminger doesn't seem to have selected Trumbo for the Exodus rewrite out of Deliberate Defiance. It was more a sign of his knack for how to use controversy to sell a movie. Remember, Preminger had a freedom that Douglas didn't have, because Preminger was working for the one studio where Defiance of the Blacklist wasn't defiance of studio policy. United Artists. UA released a statement. Mr. Preminger has complete autonomy in the selection of writers employed for Exodus. United Artists has no rights of consultation or approval in this matter, and we intend to respect our contractual obligation. Typically remembering things slightly differently than everyone else, Kirk Douglas insists that it was he who influenced Preminger, and not the other way around. Once Trumbo was able to freely park on the lot, Douglas says, the star and writer had lunch together in the studio commissary, and, according to Douglas, gossip about that lunch was so widespread that the very next day, Douglas got a call from Preminger in New York. The director was working on the script for Exodus with another blacklisted writer, Albert Maltz, and was furious that Douglas had openly lunched with Trumbo, thus flaunting his association with a blacklistee. According to Douglas, Preminger yelled at him over the phone, arguing that for them both to openly hire members of the Hollywood 10 would somehow kill both pictures. In Douglas's recollection, when the apoplectic Preminger told him he could not do this, Douglas calmly responded, Otto, it's already done. The argument Douglas claims Preminger was making doesn't really make sense particularly in light of the fact that Preminger only days later hired Trumbo to rewrite Malta's script. Both the more dramatic and more plausible version of the story is Trumbo's, which has Trumbo receiving a telegram from Preminger on December 12, 1959, instructing him to buy and read the book Exodus, and adding, You must help me. I will arrive December 16. Trumbo says Preminger kept his word and showed up on Trumbo's doorstep carrying Maltz's draft of the Exodus script, which was 400 pages long. Given that one script page roughly equals about a minute of screen time, even for an epic, this draft was clearly unfilmable. Trumbo agreed to edit and rewrite Maltz's draft, and he wrote to Maltz telling him his reasons for taking on the assignment. Reason one was unsentimental, bordering on unkind. Trumbo wrote, I think your script is what happens to all of us now and again. A miss. According to a biography of Trumbo authorized by his family, Maltz made no objection to this. Maybe Maltz was just being realistic. This was still a couple of months before the near miss he'd experience working with Frank Sinatra, which we talked about last week. But Maltz was not done with Trumbo, as we'll see later in this episode. I love to cook my own meals. It's a nice mental and physical break at the end of my day, and if you have all the ingredients and a recipe in front of you, it really doesn't take longer than ordering out, and it's way more efficient than going to a restaurant. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals, so they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms fisheries and ranchers. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron brings you the best. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients so that you can make delicious home-cooked meals. If you order from Blue Apron this month, you can make delicious things like spicy Korean rice cakes with snow peas and pea shoots, Sweet chili ponzu catfish and green beans with coconut ginger rice. Or New England-style salmon rolls with roasted potatoes and chives. Fresh, high-quality ingredients taste better and are better for you, so it's important to know where your food comes from. But you never have to worry about the quality or sustainability of Blue Apron's ingredients. Their chickens are free-range, their pork is raised naturally, and their seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Check out this week's menu and get your two meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com remember. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash remember.
0: And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com slash audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Anyway,
1: the apparently laissez-faire attitude that allowed for two different studios to hire a member of the Hollywood Ten was more than the American Legion could handle. Though columnists like Hedda Hopper held firm on the pro-Blacklist studio party line, the Legion apparently felt threatened by these new events. They announced in February 1960 that they were launching what they called a War of Information to stop in its tracks, quote, a renewed invasion of American filmdom by Soviet indoctrinated artists. As an example, the Legion cited Inherit the Wind currently in production by Stanley Kramer, from a script co-written by blacklisted writer Ned Young. But times had changed since the Legion led the widespread fear campaigns of 1951 and 1952. This time, Kramer felt emboldened to call out the American Legion's Americanism. This is as totally un-American as anything I can imagine, Kramer told the New York Times. Those who set up their own yardstick may do so for themselves. But when it seems necessary to them to inflict their viewpoint on others and to apply economic pressures if they do not obtain agreement, then they are as guilty of misconstruing democracy as were the people who blundered into the Communist Party in the 30s and 40s. A week later, CBS aired a live debate between Kramer and Martin McNeely, the national commander of the American Legion. McNeely claimed that all the Legion wanted was for the studios to stick to the 1947 agreement and for the public to be aware of subversion. Kramer took the pro-capitalist argument, saying that as an individual entrepreneur, he needed to have the right to hire whomever he wanted. This was, in a sense using the Legion's own rhetoric against them. That the Legion's threats to boycott movies had previously been so effective was in fact a tacit acknowledgement that the communists hadn't infiltrated movies to the extent of changing the industry's core values. The movie business was still a business, and money talked. The Legion acknowledged this in a scare editorial in the April 1960 edition of their magazine, called... Will the public support re-entry of reds in films? The article cited four films as test cases. Exodus, Spartacus, Chance Meeting, and Inherent the Wind. All movies written by accused communists. If those movies did well at the box office, the Legion warned... The Waldorf Declaration will be broken, and Hollywood will be open to a repeat performance of the horrible nightmare of communist infestation of the 1930s and 40s, a specter that no responsible head of the industry would want to come back to haunt them. Universal, Douglas, and his production company were apparently still hedging their bets against that haunting. For months, they neither confirmed nor denied that Trumbo would be credited. In February, after the New York Times noted that they hadn't been able to get any confirmation of Trumbo's hiring, Howard Fast piped up, telling the Times that he'd written at least half of the script anyway, and if he wasn't going to get credit, it was the first he'd heard of it. Over the summer, while filming Exodus... Trembo did his part to puncture the Legion's appearance of control, announcing that he'd written more than 30 films in Hollywood while supposedly blacklisted. Months went by, with Universal apparently waiting to see how the public would react to the Legion's complaints, and the Writers Guild conducted an arbitration to determine Fast's claim to credit. Finally, after the Guild so ruled... In August, Universal confirmed that Dalton Trumbo would be the film's sole credited writer. Douglas's name wasn't on the announcement. Six of one, half dozen of the other, Preminger announced he would give credit to Trumbo first, but Douglas actually did it, because Spartacus beat Exodus to theaters by three months. And even if he somewhat exaggerated his role in breaking the blacklist, openly crediting Trumbo was a gamble. And as producer and star of Spartacus, Douglas was the public face of that gamble. Only a few months had passed since Frank Sinatra had been forced to rescind his offer to hire and credit Albert Maltz. Spartacus had cost $10 million to make, and if it turned out that the American Legion still had any pull, the studio stood to lose a fortune. And since Trumbo had nowhere to fall, Douglas's own career was likely to bear the brunt of the consequences. Instead, the Legion bore the brunt of the consequences. On October 19, 1960, they only managed to put together 36 picketers for the film's Los Angeles premiere, an event which drew 1,500 guests. In December, the Legion held another picket when Exodus opened, to just as little effect. The question the Legion had asked was... Will the public support re-entry of reds in films? In the case of the two Trumbo films, the answer was a resounding yes. Spartacus became the highest-grossing movie released in 1960, and Exodus wasn't far behind. It was the third highest-grossing movie of the year, and that feat was perhaps more impressive, given that it had a longer running time and had cost far less than Spartacus to produce. The industry that had fired dozens of workers and prevented perhaps hundreds of others from securing work out of fear of boycotts and potential government regulation now had two pieces of evidence that the market at least was ready for prestige pictures openly written by men who had been accused of refusing to talk about communism but there is still the question of how the government would respond 22 years after HUAC was first established 13 years after the first Hollywood hearings, six years after Senator Joseph McCarthy had been censured by his fellow senators for witch-hunting, and a month after former HUAC member Richard Nixon had lost the presidential election, would anyone in Washington still find it advantageous to drum up fear and panic about the threat posed by supposed communists in the movie industry? On that score the newly most powerful man in Washington, set the tone. On February 4th, 1961, the Warner Theater near the White House had an unexpected guest at their evening screening of Spartacus, President Kennedy, who slipped out of the White House on a whim to see a movie that his brother Bobby had recommended. This was very unusual. Presidents usually watched new Hollywood movies privately in the White House. In order for Kennedy to make the trip, Secret Service had to make arrangements, and reporters were alerted to his movements. As for the movie, it was fine, he told reporters. A year earlier, Hedda Hopper had written that real Americans were not gullible enough to go see anything written by Trumbo. Now the president himself was seeing Spartacus a movie the American Legion had condemned, on a whim, in public. And the publications which wrote about the event didn't bother to mention the Blacklist or Trumbo's communist past. Take that, Hedda. If no one talked about the Blacklist, did it still exist? Certainly perception mattered, As Trumbo put it in a letter to Michael Wilson, the, quote, "...problem was to create throughout the industry an atmosphere which would accept the end of the blacklist as an accomplished fact." By stating that the blacklist is over, we actually convinced large segments of the motion picture industry and the public at large that it was really over. It was over, for Trumbo, but by no means was the blacklist over for everyone." In June 1960, after a six-month writer's strike, the Screenwriters Guild agreed to strike the provision in their basic agreement that had been there since the battle between Howard Hughes and Paul Jericho, allowing studios to deprive writers of credit on any film. But two full years later, Michael Wilson, who had written the first draft of Lawrence of Arabia, was not credited at all on the release print of that movie. Abraham Polanski didn't receive his first post-blacklist screen credit until 1968. Albert Maltz had to wait until 1970. Some people never went back to work. Former blacklistee Carl Foreman had become an executive at Columbia by the mid-1960s. But when he tried to hire Hollywood 10 member Lester Cole to write Born Free in 1965, the other power brokers at the studio balked. And Cole was only allowed to write the film under a pseudonym. But as the old guard gave way to the new Hollywood, some blacklist victims triumphed. To the generation that seized power in Hollywood towards the end of the 1960s, it wasn't a bad thing to have been associated with communism in the 1930s and 40s and to have suffered for it. In fact, it was a badge of honor. Waldo Salt, blacklisted between 1951 and 1962, wrote the 1969 Best Picture winner Midnight Cowboy, winning an Oscar in the process, and Ring Lardner Jr. won an Oscar in 1971 for writing Robert Altman's M.A.S.H., both movies that would have been unimaginable just a few years earlier. Actress Lee Grant found the blacklist an obstacle to working in movies for almost two decades, until a recurring part on the TV soap Paid in Place brought her back into vogue. She would hit the peak of her career in the late 1960s and 1970s, when she was in her 40s and even 50s. An anomaly for any actress, but totally unheard of for an actress who was often playing highly sexualized parts. These were exceptions to the rule. Most people who were blacklisted never went back to work. In a town and industry where you're only as good as your last credit, most people couldn't come back after being away for so long. In 1963, Frances Sage, a blacklisted actress and the wife of Ned Young, reportedly became so despondent over her inability to work that she committed suicide. If you were someone who still struggled after the barricades had supposedly been torn down, it was hard not to hold grudges. This is something Dalton Trumbo learned in 1970, after making a speech at a Screenwriters Guild event in which he famously said of the blacklist... It will do no good to search for villains or heroes or saints or devils because there were none. There were only victims. Some suffered less than others, some grew and some diminished. But in the final tally, we were all victims. None of us, right, left, or center, emerged from that long nightmare without sin. This statement enraged Albert Maltz who was just starting to get back to work. He stewed over Trumbo's statement for two years, before finally writing him a rebuttal. If an informer in the French underground who sent a friend to the torture chambers of the Gestapo was equally a victim, Maltz wrote to Trumbo, then there can be no right or wrong in life that I understand. Maltz wasn't the first to use a Nazi metaphor. Remember, as J. Parnell Thomas manically pounded his gavel way back in 1947, Trumbo had shouted, This is the beginning of the American concentration camp! But now, Trumbo was in a different place. He believed the only thing worth pointing fingers at was the climate of fear that had made men act badly, a fog which had now dissipated and should have allowed them all to see things clearly. But Maltz held on to his anger. Trumbo and Maltz would go on to write increasingly vitriolic letters to one another for years. Six years. Until Trumbo succumbed to cancer. Neither Maltz nor Trumbo was necessarily right or wrong. History needs both of them. The one who was happy to step back on the pedestal of celebrity and graciously get back to the work of writing Hollywood movies and the one who, obstinately, remained a thorn in the side of any segment of the industry that sought to forget what had happened and why. If the McCarthy years were the path America needed to take to get from the unity of World War II to the generational revolution moment of Vietnam, the blacklist was the interregnum Hollywood needed to break down the authority of the studio system and to bring on new Hollywood which, of course, eventually devolved into a blockbuster era that was more excessive and hegemonic than anything that came before. But that is a story for another season. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth, That's Me, and it was co-written by Matthew Dessam. Our production and research assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz, and this episode was edited by Henry Malofsky. Henry has edited most of our episodes since last September, and this will be his final episode. He's moving on to other projects. We're sad to see him go, and we wish him the best. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, you must remember If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at Remember This Pod, and rating and reviewing the show on iTunes and subscribing to it there really helps people find the show. We will be back in July with new episodes. Until then, you can enjoy nearly 100 episodes in our archives which you can find on iTunes at youmustrememberthispodcast.com or on the podcatcher of your choice. Join us then, won't you? Good night.